Well, church, as I always do, I want to again humbly acknowledge how inept I feel when I get behind this pulpit. And I want you to know because disseminating God's word on his behalf and feeding the sheep is a very serious thing that I do not take lightly. In fact, I've had lots of trouble sleeping this week. And I said, Lord, is it because of the message? And I received lots of confirmation that it was because of the message, but not in the wrong way. I would be amiss, though, if I did not fully acknowledge the weight I constantly feel trying to be obedient wherein God has placed me. And I'll just ask that you pray for me in the quietness of your heart this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, we'll get there in a minute. But I do want to say that Ephesians chapter 4, I forgot i got to say it three times for myself. <laughs> Over the last 18 months or so, I've spent considerable time trying to get clarity on how Christ's church would ever survive or move forward in a way that glorifies God, exalts Christ, and sees His bride sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I'll be transparent. I've been struggling lately to receive clarity in a lot of things. That's not a place I like to be in. But the one thing I'm really struggling with is the church. And I'm not talking about the building. I know most of you would say and have said before, Pastor, that's a problem everywhere. And again, I humbly acknowledge it is most certainly a problem everywhere. It's an epidemic. But my reply has always been and will always continue to be, I am not concerned about everywhere. I'm concerned about where I have been sovereignly placed by God in this exact moment of time. Why? Because I'm not everywhere. You're not everywhere. We're here at this moment in time in this particular body sovereignly placed by God for such a time as this. Mordecai told Esther that if she were to remain silent, deliverance would arise from somewhere else for the Jews and her and her father's house would perish. But perhaps she gained royalty for such a time as this. Now, y'all know the story. The book of Esther is a wonderful depiction of God's sovereignty and His hand of deliverance, even though the book doesn't mention God not one time. One of the king's men wants to destroy God's people. And without mercy, he's all but God is wish. Mordecai reaches out to his cousin, who has been brought into the palace and given a royal status as one of the king's chosen. Unfortunately, what Mordecai thought would be deliverance for the Jewish people, Esther saw as self-preservation. Mordecai was chastening his cousin Esther for her self-righteous, self-indulgent, and self-preserving character. Think about it. Esther received royalty, and the Bible says that everything happens according to God's will, His sovereign will. Esther received royalty by God's hand for such a time as this, but Esther was more concerned about herself. She was enjoying the royal pomp, pomp of her status and was therefore more concerned about holding on to what she had than causing waves that may negatively affect her. She wished to preserve her way of life and was scared that she would lose her life. Now before you say, Pastor, I don't think that's how it went, I'll read it to you real quick. It's not difficult to understand the context. Here's what Esther says. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. 
They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Now, if you're sitting there saying to yourself, Pastor, I thought you said we're going to be in Ephesians. Why are you reading Esther? My goal is here to have each one of us in this very moment of time, at this very place, relate. Personally relate. Not to Mordecai, but to Esther. I want us to see ourselves for who we are and what we've been or have become over the last, well, I could say 18 months, but what we have become over the last 18 months and what we currently find ourselves as a body was merely a manifestation of what the church has been diligently working towards for the last 18 to 20 years. When we as a people are more concerned about our status, our image, our self-preservation, our self-righteousness, our accolades, our successes, and me, 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 we breed disunity in the church and it will kill the bride of Christ. Let me repeat that for clarity in case we were not paying attention. When we as a people, as Christians, are more concerned about our status, our self-image, our self-preservation, our self-righteousness, our accolades, our successes and achievements, and the me monster, me, 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 we breed disunity in the church, and it will kill the bride of Christ. Church, let me paint you a picture of what disunity looks like and what it can do to a church. You're probably full aware of this. I don't have to tell most of you. Imagine for a moment, though, that a church has four pillars on which it stands, and to each pillar is tied a bunch of horses that are about ready to run in opposite directions. Better yet, since the church is supposed to represent the body of Christ, let's make this illustration a bit stickier. Imagine those horses are tied to each limb on the body. What happens when someone slaps those horses? They run in different directions and the body's torn apart, the pillars are broken down, and the bride of Christ dies. Now you may be sitting there thinking, wow, pastor, that's a bit much, don't you think? But I want you to look around you. In this building, outside this building, at your home, at the grocery store, your place of employment, the media, social media, the sports games, and you'll see it if you look hard enough. The bride of Christ is sick and we will die if something doesn't change. Church, in this moment of time, in this very place, I'm concerned that we have allowed the past to keep us trapped. We have allowed the present to replace our spirit of faith with the spirit of fear, and we've all but lost hope for the future. And with that, I hope you have your Bibles turned to Ephesians chapter 4, and if you wouldn't mind, please honor the reading of God's Word and stand as we read through the first six verses. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, 
Thank you again for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for the wicked sinners that we are, Lord. Thank you for loving us and giving us a spirit of faith and of power and love and sound mind. And thank you, Lord, for all the sacrifice you made on our behalf. Father, I don't begin to one moment assume that I've got it all together, but Lord, I pray today, this morning, that these words that come out of these feebling lips and tongue, Lord, would be to your glory and your honor and to the edification of the church, that your spirit, God, would just pierce our heart, Lord, and make it real to us, Lord. Let it apply to our lives, Father, that you would be high and lifted up and that we would be brought low because you are God of God and King of kings and there is no other. God, please... Please, Lord, be with us this morning and give us clarity of thought and mind as we seek to expound these words before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. Thank you. Church, the first thing I want to point to this morning is actually a question. And it's a very important question I think we all need to reflectively ask ourselves. That is, we need to, we need to ask this question, take some time to look at our life, and, uh, and, and, and think through it and see that we might arrive at a correct and honest and humble answer. And here's the question I want to pose to us. Are you a fellow prisoner or a bell bondsman? Everybody knows what a bell bondsman does. They get people out of prison, right? Are you a fellow prisoner or a bell bondsman? Paul considered himself a prisoner to Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. That's us. We're Gentiles. He went on three missionary journeys for the sake of the Gentiles. Paul was beaten times without number, often, he said, in danger of death, five times received from the Jews, 39 lashes, three times was beaten with rods, once was stoned, three times shipwrecked, a whole night and day he spent in the sea. He experienced dangers from robbers, his own countrymen, from the Gentiles he was preaching to, in the city, in the wilderness, the sea. He experienced danger from false brethren, that is, people he thought were Christians but were really ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. He continued with hunger and thirst and many sleepless nights. And on top of all this pressure and danger and physical harm, he says in 2 Corinthians that he also had daily pressure because of his concern for the church, churches. And as we get ready to break down these six verses in Ephesians, again I ask you, are you a fellow prisoner or are you a bell bondsman? I want you to ponder this question in your heart and mind as we make our way through this. Are you a fellow prisoner taking all these pains for the sake of those that are lost and dying and doomed to eternal punishment in hell? Are you a fellow prisoner giving it your all, pouring yourself out to spread the message of hope? Or are you by your life, your words, and your actions, and your dark whispers in other people's ears, a bell bondsman trying to free the prisoner and render them ineffective in the kingdom of God? I wonder again, are you a prisoner seeking the increase of God's kingdom, the good of the church, building up and encouraging your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, or are you gossiping, slandering, whispering to the ears of others, complaining, fussing, telling yourself as so-and-so would just do such-and-such and blah, blah, blah? Or are you the bell bondsman trying to render the prisoner useless? Let me see... Um, I'm going to give you a quick side note on the way sermons typically work, not because I'm assaulting your intelligence, but because I'm doing it a little differently this morning. Typically, a pastor will have a few points, and each point will contain an explanation, an application, and an illustration. And the explanation just helps us kind of understand what's being said. And then the illustration just kind of paints a picture for us to follow along so we stay interested and don't fall asleep with my boring voice. An application personalizes it and helps us apply it to our life. 
This morning, we're going to be a little heavy on explanation and application, not so much on illustration. I just want you to know that so you're able to follow along. But the first thing I want to do here is simply echo Paul's plea. And when I say earnest plea, I mean he's begging. He's imploring us, urging us to do something. Please, for the love of God, if you love God, do this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Look again at verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Paul's very clear here that you and I must walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. He didn't give us an option, right? This is, this is not like going to the local ice cream shop and them asking your opinion on sprinkles and chocolate syrup. This is Paul telling us, you must do this if you are a Christian. You must walk worthy to the thing which you've been called. And some of us may not fully understand what we've been called to as Christians, so I want to explain what we've been called to. In short, each one of us, if you consider yourself a Christian, have been called to the gospel. You say, duh, pastor. But let me explain. The gospel, the good news. But the immediate effect that the gospel has is not the expected result or the immediate result, the actual thing we're called to. The gospel is not just the good news that you and I are sinners that stand justly condemned under God's holy wrath because of our sin. And if we confess our sins, repent, and put our faith in Jesus that he would forgive us, save us from God's wrath, and grant us everlasting and eternal life. That is what the gospel is. And when you walk through the gospel, that's what the gospel does. But that's not where it should stop. You can't see it. If that's where it stopped, church, if it stopped at putting your faith in Jesus and repenting of your sin, God would have snatched us all the way to heaven the moment we did that. You're called to the gospel to walk through it, but that's not where you're called to stop. The gospel is the immediate result. That which you and I have been called to, it's not the anticipated end. The gospel is a means to something more. It's a means to something more. Something that is expected to be ongoing, right? And so in Greek, we call this a state of aspect. I told you, lots of explanations, sorry. Um, what that means is the thing itself, the gospel, has an immediate effect, but the state of aspect is the ongoing effect it's supposed to continue to have. That's what a state of aspect is. And the gospel carries with it an expectation that, yes, we repent and put faith in Jesus, but we're supposed to be ongoing to do something. An example of this might be investments. If you invest money into a high-yield account, you'll immediately, theoretically, receive monetary gain, right? And if you leave your money there, right, the state of or ongoing aspect is that it will continue to grow, right? So the initial thing was the investment, the money continues to grow. The gospel, in a way, is similar. If you're called to it, you receive the initial benefit. But there's an expectation of an ongoing effect in your life, or there should be. So while you're called to the gospel as a Christian, you're not called to stop once you exercise faith, repent, and receive forever life. It's, the gospel should be all-encompassing, head to toe. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, right? It's all-encompassing your entire life. It should direct your thoughts. 
Your thoughts when you get up in the morning should be affected, that is, changed or brought into submission to the gospel, the thing which you have been called to. The first thing you reach for in the morning should be direct result of having submitted your life to the gospel. And I know everybody's like, look, I reach for a cup of coffee in the morning. I get that. You get the point. I do too. But once you splash that caffeine in your eyes, is it the Bible you reach for or your cell phone? Do you check God's word or text and emails? Do you follow his commands or idols on social media? Here's another one. It should affect the way you treat people. It should affect the way you treat people. Even the ones you don't like and are hard to get along with. Especially them. How you treat people should be affected by and brought into submission to the thing to which you and I have been called. And I wish I had the time to divulge this more, but I'll have to cut it short and move on by simply saying this. Every bit of your mind, body, and soul should be directed, affected, and brought into submission to the calling to which you've been called, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that understanding of our calling, I want to show you what it looks like to walk worthy. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. You and I are called to walk worthy. How do you walk worthy? I hope that's a question you're asking yourself on a daily basis. I ask myself. And I think if we don't ask ourselves that question on a daily basis, we need to ask Jesus to turn up the heat and melt the little bit of ice that's growing around the edges of our heart. Because if you're not wondering how you can walk worthy according to the gospel, we're doing it wrong. Let me tell you a story. And whether or not it's true doesn't really matter. The, the fact, uh, the lesson is what's important here. A lady came into the pastor's office after church one Sunday and said that she was going to leave the church. When the pastor asked why, she gave a list of issues involving many of the other members of the church. One lady was always gossiping, another was a hypocrite, the worship team wasn't living consistent lives, people were talking while the pastor was speaking, and people were looking at their phones during the worship service. Pastor, pastor tells the lady that if she will come back one more week and follow his instructions and still wish to leave after talking with him, he will not argue with her. Looking inquisitively at the pastor, she asked what he wanted her to do. He said, I want you to walk around the church three times with a full glass of water without spilling a drop. Not even one. After you do that next week and you talk to me, if you still want to leave, I'll let you go and not argue. Next week, the lady comes to church and begins walking around with her glass of water thinking, that pastor must be crazy. But after all, she's attended that church for decades and she wants to make it work. After service, she returns without having spilled one drop and joyfully tells the pastor. After a deep breath and a smile, the pastor asks her a very important question. Did you notice any hypocrites, gossips, or people on their phone? Did you notice anything about the worship team or people being rude? Well, he said, well, of course not, pastor. I was carrying a glass of water. To which he replies, you were focused on the glass to make sure you didn't stumble and spill any water. It's the same with your life. 
when you keep your eyes on Jesus, you don't have time to focus on the mistakes of others. Instead, you'll reach out a helping hand to them and concentrate on your own walk with the Lord. Church, walking worthy is not being a busybody, a gossip, or a slanderer, or one that complains all the time, or one that argues. If you come to church, whether you're part of the worship team, or a teacher, or just a pew warmer, if you constantly argue and fuss at others, you're not walking worthy to the thing which you've been called to. That's not me, church. That's scripture. Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, which is the gospel. The word walk here in the Greek means to prove your ability. To prove your ability. That's why Paul says to walk worthy, you must do so with humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for each other in love. In doing this, you'll be diligent in preserving the spirit of unity. So humility and gentleness, what does that look like? Gentleness goes in step with humility. I'll give you an example of what gentleness doesn't look like. I'm about to give you an intimate picture of my sin life. Are you ready? When I make my kids food, like I slave over a hot meal, I know what you're thinking, yeah, right, Pastor. Sometimes I do. But when I do, we're all sitting around eating, and I'm like, you're welcome. (laughs) It's not gentleness, is it? Certainly not humility. So I've since tried to stop doing that, and you know what I noticed? Thank yous. You know what I noticed? Appreciative that I'm able to make food for my children that they can actually eat. That we sit around the table and have fellowship. Gentleness is serving in humility without the spotlight factor. Now, some have said that humility is thinking of yourself less and others more. I agree, but I don't like that definition because there's ample room for people to get puffed up with pride and arrogance. The reason I say that is because every one of us has a sin problem. Do you see what I did for so-and-so? And the more we do for others, that opportunity to become a me monster and get all puffed up starts to creep up in our lives. And I know Paul said in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. So he does say that we ought to regard one another as more important than ourselves. But did you notice he prefaces that statement with do nothing from selfish or empty conceit? Because he knows just as well as we all do that we all have a sin problem and the more pats we get on the back, great job, the more we're like, you're right, it was a great job. And if we're not careful, we can lean into pride. And based on the entirety of scripture, I much to prefer to define humility as acknowledging our lack of anything good in ourselves and embracing, embracing complete dependence on God for everything. I'm going to say that again for clarity. I define humility based on scripture and various verses, acknowledging our lack of anything good in ourselves and embracing complete dependence on God for everything. Now, if you tell yourself that you can do nothing apart from God, you are constantly reminding yourself that everything you have comes from him, and it's natural in that case to exercise humility especially in service towards others. You don't leave yourself room to get puffed up. And the difference is simple. It comes down to either look what God did or look what I did. Man, if it wasn't for me, this church, blah, blah, blah. 
Listen, humanly speaking, that may be correct, but church, let me remind every single one of us, if it wasn't for God, neither one of us would even be here. By His grace, can we even come here as a body and worship and love each other? It's a matter of perspective, and if every single thing you do is not birthed out of, look what God did, then there's always ample room to get puffed up and walk in pride. It's inevitable. And then Paul says, not only humility and gentleness is the way you walk worthy, but you also got to have patience, long-suffering, tolerance, and love. Paul, you just don't know. We're supposed to also show tolerance with love. Tolerance is a big, nasty word nowadays in our uh, society because really what it means to most people, and dare I say even Christians, is that tolerance is really you shutting your mouth about my life and my sin and me still being able to run mine about yours. I don't know if you're familiar with Prince's Bride, Indigo Montoya, but he had a famous line I like to quote. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Tolerance should be translated as bear with or endure with. Bear with one another, endure with one another. It's not tolerating somebody being mean or nasty or hateful. It's bearing with one another's burdens and sins and forgiving them as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. That's tolerance. This means you and I are to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. You were called to the gospel and to walk worthy, which means stop living in the past and give it to God. Stop running your mouth about people, have someone wronged you? I'm not discounting the severity of that. I'm really not. We've all been done wrong by people because we're all sinners, okay? It's a very serious thing. But what I am saying is that is life as one sinner living amongst a bunch of other sinners. We have six people in our household. Well, five, but we'll have our sixth one back soon. I praise God. Six people, six different personalities, six different people living as sinners, unified under the same house, all trying to walk worthy. And they're all boys except for my wife. So naturally, they're, you know, I'll take care of it, Dad. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but my point is, we will never be able to bear with one another and, and tolerate or help each other in love if we're all trying to do our own thing and being prideful and arrogant. We have to realize that they're not the problem. We're the problem. G.K. Chesterton said when they wrote, uh, asked him to write an article, a column about a very important question is, what's wrong with the world today? And he, was, he did lots of things. He was a writer. He was a critic. He was a, far more intelligent than I am. And he sent back one sentence to this newspaper periodical and said, Dear sirs, I am. You know what he meant? That it didn't matter if you legislate all day long and make all these laws and do all these things, force people to be nice to each other, there's still the potential for evil because of our heart. Even if 99% of the people in the world were acting right, there'd still be the 1%. And I know what some of us are thinking, Pastor, you don't understand, that person, that, that person keeps sinning against me. And I don't have time to get into what the Bible says, but it's very, very clear. We are to forgive and try our best to reconcile. If the other person is, does not receive it or is not receptive, 
you, as long as you've done what you're supposed to do according to the Lord, are clear in God's eyes. You must do this in love. This is the word everyone likes to throw around, agape. You're to show warm and charitable affections for your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they wrong you. That doesn't mean you continue to put yourself in a position to be wronged. Absolutely not. But Scripture says if someone sins against you, go to that person. If they're unwilling to admit their fault and accept responsibility, take a brother or sister with you. And if they're still refusing, you're supposed to bring it to the church. And Jesus says in Matthew that at that point, if they're still unwilling to acknowledge and repent, they are to be put out of the congregation. Paul said the same thing many times. He said clearly that he handed people over to Satan because they continue to stir the pot and make trouble and refuse to repent. And they create disunity in the church. But if you're called to the gospel, you must forgive and let go of the past if you're going to walk worthy. And I know it's difficult. We all struggle with this. But we're commanded by God who died so that you could be forgiven and I could be forgiven to walk worthy. And this is simply a precursor to maintaining unity within a group of sinners, imperfect people who are trying to get it right. If you spend your time gossiping, goofing off, or focusing on everyone else's sins without dealing with your own, even though that they could just as easily be pointed out, you're not called to the gospel. You're called to a weekly play date at the local country club for as long as this building's still here. Let me tell you what I mean. If you're having struggles in your marriage, do you come to church to worship God and earnestly seek Him so He can help you? Or are you coming to church to be in the spotlight and pretend all is well? Do you spend your time gossiping, slandering, complaining, or fussing about others regardless of how many times you say bless their heart and then come to church pretending like you don't need to be on your face at the altar? You're not exercising humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're acting like a meme monster, creating disunity in the church. And just in case you don't know what gossip or slander is, let me explain because I know people will say, well, I'm a little confused on what the Bible says. I'll tell you. Gossip is a person who habitually spreads intimate or private facts that are none of your business. It would be like spreading news about someone you heard through the Ash County grapevine, but never going to that person to extend a helping hand. Slander is oral, with your tongue, that James says could light a forest on fire, is communication of false and malicious statements that damage the reputation of another. Habitual gossip and slander is a sign of disunity, and it will kill the bride of Christ. Here's a challenge for you to make your walk worthy of the thing to which you've been called. Every day when you get up, how about you and I commit to grab our Bible instead of our phone and read it for 10 minutes? Start in one book, read for 10 minutes until you move to another book. And before you do that, pray that God would bless your time and effort and that he would be the focus, not the billions of other things you could waste your time and energy on, which would hold no eternal value. And then the second thing is, Prove it. Paul said, do you walk worthy according to the call which you've been called? Prove it. And the second last thing, and we're going to move quickly for sake of time, that I want to quickly do is show you that if you're walking according to your call, you must walk in unity according to that call. Paul tells us to walk in unity according to our call. Look again at verse 3. Being diligent to persevere, or preserve, excuse me, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Being diligent here means to laboriously labor and strive after unity. We've all worked hard. 
But are we working hard for unity or are we working hard for something else? Preserve means to keep our eyes on the prize of unity and to guard it like the life of the church depended on it. It means when Jesus tells us to remain alert, don't fall asleep, spiritually speaking, at your post. Paul says if you do this, the reason you should is summed up in verses 4 and 6. And don't miss how important this is. There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one There's no other faith, no other God, no other Savior and Lord, no other spirit and no other body, no other hope of your calling. Basically, if the Bible doesn't say it, then it ain't true. Don't say it. I'll give you an example. I grew up many, many years thinking the Bible said God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> That's not in the Scripture. Because if you're familiar with the scripture. The Bible says you can't help yourself. I can't help myself. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. And before God saved us and loved us, we loved our sin too much to help ourselves. Some of us still do. I mean, we could have stood there all day and night. Lazarus would have stayed dead in the tomb had it not been for the powerful word of God that said, Lazarus, come out! I really wish I had more time to break this down, each of these concepts of unity, but I don't. Unity is important, and the reason I spent most of my time uh, talking about what it meant to be called to, or what we are called to, and how to walk according to that call, is because if you understand those things and practice them habitually in the power of the Spirit, we will be diligent and labor to preserve unity, because without it, the bride of Christ will die. Consider quickly that there are 30,000 religious denominations in the world. 9,000 or so Christian denominations, or 1,100, depending on where you get your research. And again, I don't have time to get into denominations, but you can still subscribe to Christ and get it wrong, the gospel, that is, by taking away or adding to it. And you all know this more than I do, but there's 150 churches in this county. Why? Because we haven't been diligent to preserve the unity in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We've been more concerned about exterior factors, gossip, slandering, complaining, backbiting, and making sure we feed the meme monsters. Well, pastor, so-and-so did such-and-such, and I don't like it, so I'm going to go to a different church. Well, such-and-such such church wants me to be accountable, so I'm going to go to a different church. Pastor left, so I'm leaving. I'm tithing already. What more do you want? Children's ministry? <sighs> Different church. The list goes on and on. And I'm not discounting the severity of it, but it's because we're not walking worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Don't misunderstand me, church. There are very real, legitimate reasons to leave a church, okay? Or a, or a group of people who subscribe to a particular building. There are many, many legitimate reasons. But the majority of the time, that's not why we're leaving. We're leaving because we don't like the music, or the potluck didn't have my favorite food, or we're more concerned about exterior factors that will not do us any good when we stand before Jesus Christ. Let me 
close with some application. You and I have been called to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ron, if you all want to come up and prepare. If you are a Christian, if you confess Christ as Lord and Savior, you are called to be in the ever-present state of being that reflects the calling to which you've been called. I'm called to that. You're called to that. Before you think, speak, or act, you have to ask yourself, are my thoughts, are my words, and my actions brought under submission to my calling as a Christian? Am I laboring diligently to preserve the unity of the body, or am I tearing away at the fabric of unity? And now it's easy for all of us to be like, oh sure, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, I'm all good over here, pastor. But we need a proper way to measure this in our lives with some accountability in order that we might know for sure. And so I want to pose to you a few questions. It's how you can measure your thoughts, your words, and your actions, and whether or not they line up to the calling to which you've been called. And whether or not you're striving to preserve unity. Ask yourself these questions in humility. I have to every day, and sometimes I don't like the answer. Number one. When was the last time I maintained a consistent, ongoing, deep, relational reading of God's Word? Number two, when is the last time I shared the gospel with another human? Number three, when was the last time I wholeheartedly and with infectious joy served in the church? Number four, when was the last time I in love, redirected somebody's unholy gossip, slander, complaining, or unrighteous living instead of joining in. And the last one, number five, when was the last time I fought laboriously to maintain the unity in the church? If your answer to any of these questions is I don't know or some type of excuse or agitation or offense for me having even brought it up, then we're not bringing our thoughts, words, and actions into submission to the calling which we've been called and that likely means that we're not fighting laboriously to maintain unity. So again, I ask you, are you a fellow prisoner of the Lord or a bell bondsman trying to render other prisoners ineffective in their service to God? And I want to pray for you this morning. Jesus is enough. He can take care of it and he can do whatever you need him to do. And if you're feeling down today, you're upset, just know that Jesus is enough. He is our joy and our salvation. Nothing on this earth can take that away from us. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to expound your word. And Father, I just pray now that your spirit of grace and mercy, God, would overflow into each one of those people that are here today represented by your name. Father, I know people are struggling with different things physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. God, I know we're struggling with so much and the world's falling down around and burning down to the ground around us. But Lord, the last thing that we ought to struggle with is a body of believers united under Christ is, is disunity, Lord. I know everybody's got their opinion, but Lord, when we take it all captive to you and submit it to you and to the calling to which we've been called, Lord, we will preserve unity. We will fight and struggle against the powers of darkness so that we as a body could be unified and that we could love each other and that we could help each other and that when we're not kicking people when they're down, but we're lifting out a helping hand, Lord, and that we're going into the world to preach the gospel, to see people saved so that they too can come to a hospital where imperfect people come forgiven and cleansed of their sin and the power of the blood and that we would Lord would lift you up forever and forever and ever Lord forgive us where we fail you please God let us be the church 
Monday through Saturday. Let us walk in unity. Thank you, God, for all that you do and for the power of the resurrection of the cross. We have eternal life. Father, I ask these things now in the most precious and holy and bloodstained name of Jesus Christ.